Our first Old Testament reading comes from Genesis chapter 3, verses 6 through 13, and can be found on page 2 in the Bibles that we provide. This is God's Word. So the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes. The tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Our gospel reading comes from John chapter 21, verses 1 through 17. can be found on page 907 in the Bibles that we provide. This is God's word. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Canaan and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. The disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far off from land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. This is the gospel of Christ. Thanks be to God. And our second Old Testament passage for this morning comes from 1 Kings 19, verses 1 through 18, and can be found on page 301 in the Bibles that we provide. This is God's word. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid. And he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. 
And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and he slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and he ate and he drank and he went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with a sword. And I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with a sword, and I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. The Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazazel, to be king over Syria, and Jehu, the son of Nimshi, anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel Mehillah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death, and the one who escapes the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Uh, I wanted to say, first off, that John Wood is away, if you haven't already realized that. If you're saying, what am I doing here? Maybe you're asking yourself that question this morning. You're like, gosh, if I didn't know John wasn't going to be here. I got other things. But, you know, if that's not the case, he is in Hong Kong with his son David. Um, he had mentioned once before when he was preaching that they had uh, two very premature twin grandchildren uh, that were born. And they are now out of the hospital and out of the woods and growing and doing well. So John went to go visit. So he sends his greetings from Hong Kong. To all of you guys, and so you're left with me. Sorry, that's the way it goes. Um, I was so encouraged. So many of y'all went out of your way to encourage me last time that I was up here preaching. Um, I, you know, some of the things that stuck out. One of you said, "You know what? When I listen to you, like at half speed, I understand everything you say." But that was great. I, I appreciate it. That was that was really kind and nice. I had a friend of mine who watched the video of it from another place. He said, "Was someone chasing you?" It's like, what do you mean? He's like, "You just kept going, like all, oh, like you wouldn't stand still." I was like, "I don't think so." Um, and, you know, so I was ready. For that. Someone said, hey, have you counted your steps? Did you ever decide? I was like, I wish I would have. But I will tell you that I finished two full and three half water bottles this morning to kind of prepare for this. So if I start dancing, there could be a whole lot of reasons for that. So just be aware. I may just speed up really quick and be done, but I'm hopefully not. I'm hopefully going to be very slow and deliberate today. I'm thinking about it very cautiously. Um, when I get the chance to preach, I, I love when someone just tells me what to preach. I'd rather do that. John didn't do that, so I got to pick whatever I wanted. I just confess, open confession, I love the Old Testament. I know a lot of people don't. I love it. I love to hear the stories. I love to see God's hand. And if you really study the Old Testament, 
Those people that say, oh, I like the God of the New Testament better than God of the Old Testament, I'm like, I don't think you've studied it. Because the same God of grace and mercy in the New Testament is also in the Old Testament. You can't help but see time and time again God's gracious hand over his people. So this morning when I get to pick a story from the Old Testament I want us to focus on, we're going to talk about Elijah. But when you study any part of the Bible, especially the Old Testament, context is super important. I'm a huge fan of context. Because if you just took this story out of context, Elijah has been threatened for death because he killed the prophets. It makes a whole lot of sense that his response is to run away. But if you understand the context of it, it's going to start to make you think, oh, really? But to do that, I'm going to go back in time. I'm going to go back in time a good little bit, so you're going to have to hang with me. Those of y'all that like hate setups, hate context, hate the setting, I'll tell you when I'm done. I'll, just, I'll, I'll make a noise or something so you'll know we've moved on. You know, but for those of the rest of you, just hang with it because I think it's important. If you'll remember that God with his people, when they went into the promised land, he told them to do something. He said, devote to destruction the people and the things in the land. And he didn't just do it because he's a vengeful, angry, mean God as we might think. He did it because he said, I know that if you don't, your hearts will go after the gods of the land. He said, if you leave those things in the land, instead of worshiping me, you will worship the false idols that the people in the land serve. And as you know, if you've read through that, they go into the land, they kind of do a half job on it, they don't do it all the way. And because of that, not long goes by before we see God's people turning away from God and turning toward the gods of the lands into false idol worship and all kinds of debauchery and terrible sin of worship. And so what happens is God, to get their attention, he would send usually enemies, someone to come after them, someone to put them in distress, someone to make them worried and nervous. And he didn't do it, again, to be mean, but he did it to get their attention. And they would cry out to the Lord, and the Lord would provide a judge, a leader, to lead them through that time to help defeat the enemy and also to bring their hearts back to God. And it worked every time. It was beautiful. And then the judge died. And when the judge died, every time God's people turned back away from God and back to the false idols. Over and over again. It's the theme of the entire book of Judges. Well, then at the end of that, the people say, we want a king. And they don't want a king for good reason. They want a king because it says they want to be just like all the other nations. Just like everybody else, we want a king. Not realizing to ask for a king is to say to God, we don't want you to be our king. God has set them up that he's their king, he's their protector, he's their leader. So for them to say, we want to be like everybody else, we're saying, God, you're not enough. We don't want you to be a king. We want some human person to come and lead us into battle like the other nations have. And God gives in to their request, but he does it with a warning. He says, you understand what this king will do. He's going to send your kids off to war. He's going to take things that are yours for himself, and he will lead you away from me. And that proved true time and time again. We see the history of the kings in Israel leading God's people away and away. So we find ourselves now to Ahab. And what the Bible tells us about Ahab is that he was the most evil of all the kings from all the ones that had come before. It said that he did more to provoke anger of the Lord than all the other kings combined. This was a very wicked king. And part of his wickedness came from his wife. He married a woman named Jezebel who was Sidonian, and she brought with her the false worship of her people, which was worshiping the Baals and worshiping the Asherahs. 
And because the king and the queen were worshiping, all the people had turned their hearts away. All the people were worshiping them instead of the true God. So this is the scene that Elijah walks into. That God says, I'm appointing you, Elijah, to speak on my behalf to the people. And his first proclamation is to go to the king and say, it won't rain. There will be a drought. And it won't rain again until I say so. And we find out it's going to be three years that the land went without rain. And you think, why a drought of all the different signs God could have used in that moment? Why a drought? Because Baal, in their minds, was the God of rain, was the God of multiplication, the God of planting and sowing and reaping. He was the one who brought rain so the plants could grow so they could eat. So God is basically saying, okay, you think he's the God of rain? Let me show you. It's not going to rain. Not at all. So he puts very clearly this plan in place of, I'm going to show my people who the true God is. And as Elijah spoke, it stopped. It did not rain for three years. But God took care of Elijah through all of this. The first thing he has Elijah do is he sends him to a place east of the Jordan. If you know anything about the geography of that place, it was not a place where people lived because it didn't have a natural food source. There was no thing you could just kind of kill or eat. Nothing lived there. But God sent him to a place that no one else would go, and he says, go and stay there. While he was there, first he provided him water. There was a brook that was there that gave him water every day. And then he provided food for him twice a day, and he did it in the most miraculous way. He had ravens come and do it. And you're thinking, no, 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 he didn't eat raven every day. He had God appointed birds to bring him bread and to bring him meat every morning and every evening. Now, the idea of that, I mean, you do realize that birds eat bread, right? Can you, I mean, this is like so against their, I mean, can you imagine like bringing it to you? Can you imagine your dog, if you dropped your steak like on like the floor, and he like brings it back, you're like, yeah, you can have this, that's good, I didn't really want to do it. I mean, it's the idea, this is like craziness. God is using his creation to sustain him, to help him, to be with him. He did not go a day without water, not a day without food at God's hand. Well, because the drought continued, as you would imagine, all the, all the streams, all the brooks dried up eventually. And so God speaks to Elijah again. He says, go, go to this certain widow. I'm going to send you to her. So Elijah goes in obedience to God to this woman's house. Now, this lady was ready to die. She was preparing her last meal for her and her son. She just had enough oil, just had enough flour for one last meal. And Elijah goes to her and says, hey, I see you don't have a whole lot. Will you just feed me first? That's pretty bold. That's a pretty bold thing to say to someone. But he says, if you do that, you won't run out of food. And it'd be easy for her to go, really, do you see what I've got? I'm, okay. In obedience, she makes a meal for Elijah, a meal for her and her son. And her oil and her flour never ran out. As long as Elijah was there, there was food every day when there should have been none. Even further than that, so her son gets very sick and dies. And Elijah, being used by the Lord, brings him back from the dead. Do you see these amazing things that Elijah has done, that Elijah has seen? The provision for him the care for him, the ministry that he does. We ain't seen nothing yet. So we get to the final showdown where God says to Elijah, we're going to say and prove once and for all who is God. 
He says, what I want you to do is call all the people, call the 450 prophets of Baal, the 400 prophets of Asherah. We're going to meet at Mount Carmel and we're going to have a little duel, a little contest to decide who is God. Both sides are going to make a altar. Both sides are going to have a sacrifice. Whichever God answers by fire is the true God. So the prophets of Baal get together, they make their nice, happy little altar, they put some wood on it, they put a sacrifice on it, and they start to beg and plead for Baal to answer. It says they screamed at the top of their lungs, they danced, they'd even cut themselves to try to obligate this God to answer them. And they were met with silence. Not a move, not a word, even to the point where Elijah, which again, I love that God shows us the truth in people's character. Elijah starts to taunt them a little bit. He's a little bit cocky about it. If you read it, he's like, oh, maybe he's asleep. Maybe he's got to yell louder. Maybe that's what it is. He even says, no, maybe he's relieving himself. Like maybe he's in the bathroom and he's busy. So if you just keep trying, he says all this to them and there's nothing. So Elijah comes and he rebuilds the altar of the Lord that had been torn down, that had been broken apart. He puts the wood, he puts the sacrifice, and then he does something crazy. Keep in mind, there's a drought. It hasn't rained in three years. He gets him to take 12 giant jugs of water and pour it over the sacrifice, pour it over the wood, pour it over the altar. So it's soaking wet, and there's even a trench around where water's in it. So there was no doubt and no question what happened. There was no trick up Elijah's sleeve. Elijah prays to the Lord and the Lord answers in fire. And it consumed the sacrifice. And it consumed the wood. That makes sense. It consumed all the rocks of the altar. And it licked up every drop of water that was around. And the people bowed down before the true one and living God. And then they put to death the false prophets. That's the history that leads up to this story. Elijah had seen the most amazing ways of God's provision. He had been used by God for so many miraculous things. And then there's a threat. And then he runs away. It says that Ahab said to Jezebel, hey, just so you know, when the prophets don't show up kind of for dinner tonight, because what we're told in another chapter is that the prophets ate at Jezebel's table every day. That's how they were sustained. And when they don't show up, it's because Elijah killed them. And she makes this claim. She goes, okay, by my gods, if you're not dead by the end of the day, then let them do that to me. What's amazing about that is like she's swearing by gods that now everyone knows are false. That Spurgeon says that he was retreating from a defeated enemy. He knows it's over. Like, he's won. But at that threat, it says he ran for his life out of fear. Now, before we give Elijah too much grief, I know all of us are like, I would never. Yeah, we would. Yeah, you would. Absolutely you would. I would. If you wouldn't, maybe there's something wrong with you. You would. We so quickly and easily forget God's provision, don't we? We talked about we raise our Ebenezer, this remembrance of what God has done. It is so quick to forget. I don't know about you, but the fear of today so quickly replaces the faithfulness of yesterday in my heart. 
The fear of today takes over the faithfulness of yesterday. No matter what God has done for me, I can get so caught up in what's right in front of me that I forget all that he's done. So Elijah flees. Elijah runs away. And if you think about what fear does, fear makes cowards of all of us. You look back through the biblical people and how you see how fear changed their entire personality, who they were. You look at Abraham, who was a man who was commended for his faith over and over again. But in fear, in fear of the Egyptians, was willing to lie and say that his wife was his sister. You see David, who was a man after God's own heart, who was a man of truth and honesty, in fear of being found out about Bathsheba, becomes one who lies and deceives. You think about Peter, you won't find much more of a bold person, for good or bad, with Peter. But Peter, for fear of death, denies Jesus and runs away. Fear is something we're all dealing with. Fear is something that turns us around from who we are and who we're supposed to be. So we see Elijah off into the wilderness, going and traveling a day into the wilderness. First place he goes is Judah, because he knows he'll be safe there. Judah has a different king, so he starts there, leaves his servant, and then goes again. Another day's journey into the wilderness. And the first thing we hear Elijah say is a prayer to the Lord. And he says, it's enough. I'm done. I'm over it. Take my life. Because I'm no better than the prophets that came before. I'm no better than my fathers. So not only was he afraid, we see here very clearly, it was failure. He felt like he failed. He felt like, I did this amazing stuff. God used me, and the people are still trying to kill me. The queen is still trying to kill me. No hearts have been changed at all. So it was all for nothing. He walked away feeling like a failure. And I love that God answers that prayer with some really cool things. He wants us to make sure we don't miss it. He puts words in Scripture from time to time for those of us like me who are really kind of like slow and I don't really get it. He wants to give me like big words that are like, oh, hey, don't forget that. The word behold, you're going to find it four times in there, and it's like, don't miss this. Like, pay attention to what's happening right here. Four times. First thing he says, behold, and an angel of the Lord comes to remind Elijah he's not alone and he's not forgotten. The second thing, behold, there is food that God is going to provide. He's going to give him provision for what he needs for what lies ahead. Three, behold, the word of the Lord will come. Remind you that I love you. Remind you that I'm here. Fourth, the presence of the Lord will come. So you see these four beholds that are about to happen with Elijah. So the first one, behold, an angel comes. God did not respond in frustration or anger. He doesn't leave Elijah alone because he's disobedient. He's running away. Because think about it. For three years, Elijah did what God told him to do every time. He went where God said. He did what God said. And now for fear, he runs away in his own direction. But instead of forgetting about Elijah or just leaving him to his own devices, he prays the Lord and the Lord answers with an angel. And then the Lord answers with provision. He provides him food and drink for the journey that is ahead. It says that on the food that he ate, he went 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Horeb. Now, if you're thinking, wait a minute, I feel like I've heard 40 before somewhere in the Bible, somewhere kind of vaguely in there. Yeah, 
40 days and 40 nights. It's how long Jesus was tempted in the desert and God provided for him. 40 days and 40 nights was how long Moses was on the mountain, the very mountain Elijah's about to go to, and God sustained him. 40 years, the amount of time that God's people wandered through the wilderness and they had food every day. And the Bible tells us their sandals never even wore out. He is very clearly pointing and saying, I want you to see my provision. I want you to see my care. And he goes to Mount Horeb. Another name for Mount Horeb is Mount Sinai. That is the mountain of God. It is where God gave his covenant to his people. It's where God spoke to his people. It's where God gave his law to his people, to Moses. That's where Elijah's headed to. Now, we don't know if that was Elijah's plan from the beginning. We don't know if it was something that God kind of said, the angel said, hey, here's the food. You're going to go on a long journey. Go here. We don't know. But he goes to Mount Horeb and he goes into a cave. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm not a Hebrew scholar. That's probably no surprise. No one in there is like, oh, wow, really? It's shocking. I'm not a Hebrew scholar, and I don't like to disagree with Hebrew scholars. That's John's job. He's smart enough to be like, they're wrong in the translation. I don't like to do that. But I will say, having made all that caveat and hoping that none of, no Hebrew scholars are coming to my house or translators are going to come to my house this week and judge me, um, they, I'm good with articles. You give me like little like A and V. Oh, I can knock those out of the park all day long. So it says a cave. The original Hebrew says the cave. And you're thinking, oh, this is, we went on that tangent for that. Wow, that's not, the cave. What tradition tells us is it's the cave where Moses was on the mountain. The cave where God put his hand over him and showed him his glory. He is in that place. But he's in that place hiding. Hiding from Jezebel, probably trying to hide from God for fear, out of failure. The next behold happens. The word of God comes to him. Behold, don't miss it. What are you doing here, Elijah? You'll have commentators who love to kind of conjecture, is it what are you doing here, Elijah? Or what are you doing here, Elijah? Or what are you doing here, Elijah? Like everybody wants to put the emphasis somewhere. We don't know. But we also know that God asked that question not because he didn't know, but because he wants to draw Elijah out. That's why we read the Genesis passage. What happens? They sin, God comes to them where they are and says, where are you? To give them a chance to confess, to give them a chance to share their heart. Same idea. God comes and asks them a question. And if you understand it, Elijah doesn't answer the question, like not even really at all. He doesn't say, well, I was kind of scared, so I... He doesn't answer. But what's funny is, you, if you'll notice how he handles this, he says something about himself and some things about God's people. He says, I have been very jealous for the Lord. The idea in the Hebrew is furiously jealous. So like, if you can imagine like all your energy jealous, like I have put my heart and soul and everything that I have in being jealous for the Lord. But, the people of Israel, which are God's people, but your people, God, have forsaken your covenant. Your people have torn down your altars, and your people have killed your prophets. Do you see what he's doing? He's like, God, I've been holding up my end of the bargain here pretty good. I've been really jealous for you, and I don't know what you're doing wrong over here, but these people aren't getting it. And you think, how dare he? And I'm like, thank you. 
Because, gosh, I feel that way sometimes. <clears throat> Thank you that you have enough relationship with him, Elijah, that you know he loves you, you know he's taking care of you, that you can just pour your soul out to him. And see, I feel like I'm doing all this, and I feel like I'm, what's wrong? Why isn't it working the way it should? Elijah says these things. Now, the response is interesting because then he says, okay, hey, God's going to show up in a minute when you hear him come out on the mountain. Now, there's a couple ways you can look at this. I don't know if, I'm sure none of you were ever in this situation. I'm sure it's only me. The times when you said something to your mom since it's Mother's Day, sorry to all moms for the things I said to my mom, um, and her response was just wait till your dad gets home. I'm sure, again, nobody probably has ever dealt with that. That's just me. That's what it feels like. It's like he says this you know, accusatory statement about God, and you know, the voice is like, oh, well, God's coming. Just give it a second. It's like, oh, um, what I really meant to say was, you've been doing a great job. I must have messed up something in the communication here. You would think he's going to back off of this because God's about to show up. And then it says that God passed by. Now, when I read that, I was like, in the Hebrew, I had an idea in my mind of what I knew it was going to mean. It's the verb of, oh, like Passover. Like he passed by the doors because they had the blood on, on, the, on the outside of the door. So that's what he means by passed by. It's not. It's actually the opposite. The verb used there was the verb of judgment that God made when he went through Exodus. It was the angel of the Lord going into the houses of the firstborn of Egypt and, and killing them. That's the verb. When he passed by, that's the passing by. So you're thinking, oh, he's coming in judgment. And then you see the judgment that happens. What is it? First, a tempest, a very strong wind that broke apart the mountain and broke apart the rocks. That it sweeps everything away. Then there's the earthquake that shakes us to our foundation, to our core. Can you imagine being in a cave in a mountain during an earthquake? And then it said there was this great fire, fire that consumes everything. But the most beautiful statement in this whole passage is, the Lord was not in them. The Lord was not in the wind. The Lord was not in the earthquake. The Lord was not in the fire. He's expecting judgment. He's expecting anger. He's expecting frustration because he's wandered far from the Lord. Then what happens next? And then came a gentle whisper. Quiet. Calm. Words only used two other times in the entire scriptures, and it's always a time of rest after a very difficult time. This whisper comes. Not what you would expect. Not what you would think. Elijah responds by wrapping his, his face because he's expecting to see God and he knows he can't look upon him. And he comes out of the cave. That God did not come as he thought he would come. God did not come in anger. God did not come in frustration. God came in tenderness and love and grace. Hosea tells us that I will speak tenderly to my people, says the Lord. That I will allure them. I will draw them out from where they are. And I don't know about you, I get that wrong all the time. But the question comes back up. God is now here. The last behold, God's presence. What are you doing here, Elijah? And if he's speaking so tenderly to him, if it comes from a whisper, if that word is talking about something that gives refreshment, I think he's, like, again, it's speculating, but like, what are you doing here, Elijah? 
It's love. It's tenderness. It's gentleness. Now, what, what I'm very impressed by Elijah, he doesn't change his story. Again, he has an, a concept and an understanding of God's favor and God's faithfulness and God's love. He says the exact same thing, word for word quote of what's going on. And at this point, you think God's like, oh, okay, okay, lightning. Doesn't do that. He gives them some sweet gifts. The first thing he does, he gives them a renewed calling. He says, I want you to go. And I want you to go anoint these people who are going to be the next generation of leaders for Israel. He doesn't disqualify him from ministry. He doesn't give up on him. Because let's be honest, we're going to find out in about two minutes, there were 7,000 other people who had not bowed to the knee to Baal. There were plenty of other you know, suspects of people that God could use. So why continue to go after Elijah? Why follow him that far? Why go 41 days of journey after him? Because God was more interested in what he was going to do in Elijah than what he was going to do through Elijah. God was more interested in the man than the mission. God loved him, cared for him, and came after him relentlessly but sweetly. And gently. He goes to Elijah when Elijah has run far away, far enough he thinks he's maybe safe. When he's hiding, when he's done, when he's over it, when he's begging that God would just take his life. That's the moment that God pursues him and comes after him. What a beautiful picture. So he gives him a renewed vision and he gives him hope. He says, here's the deal. I'm going to take care of this. I hear what you're saying about my people. I know that they've, they've killed the prophets. I know they've, they've brought down the altars. I know all this, and I've got it. Those that have led my people astray, those that are in false worship, I've got these guys. They've got swords. We're going to be fine. We're going to take care of them. But he also gives Elijah this sweet gift of perspective. What does Elijah say? Me. I, I alone am left. There's nobody else left. Everyone's trying to kill me. It's me against the world. And God says, you know what? There's 7,000 people who've never bowed down to Baal that I have reserved for myself a remnant of my people that I will use. So even though Elijah didn't see it, even though Elijah missed that, God was at work. So you don't need to feel like a failure, Elijah, because I was at work even when you weren't there. I was doing my plans, and they cannot be thwarted. They cannot be stopped. But even with your fear, even with your supposed failure, there were still 7,000 that were true to God. What I love about it is Elijah goes. Because what God called him to do was to go back from where you came. If you understand what that concept is, it's the concept of repentance. Sometimes we think about repentance as, that, well, I'm just sorry for my sins. I don't have to say, you know, my prayer of confession, I'm sorry. No, no, that's not what repentance is. Biblical repentance is to go and do a 180-degree turn and go back the way you came, the way you should come. So Elijah has gone 41 days in the wrong direction. And God says, go back. Turn around. Go back to my people. Don't be afraid. And Elijah obeys. 
And Elijah doesn't obey to try to then earn God's favor in that moment of like, well, he's been pretty nice to me. I mean, if I want him to continue to be nice to me, no. God pursued Elijah when he was running away. So Elijah's response is out of true, heartfelt, deep thankfulness for God's work. So what are you doing here? For some of you in this room, for many of us in this room, you have been running so long. It could be the fear of failing as a parent or as a husband or wife or as a roommate or as an employee or as whatever. And that fear has caused you to run away. You think, I'm not worthy to be in God's presence. He wouldn't want to hear my prayers. He doesn't want me to spend time in his word. He doesn't want me to be with his people. I'm only here because my mom made me. Some of you have been on the run for so long, not realizing something. Our preparatory reading, you can't flee from his presence. You go to the heavens, God is there. You go to Sheol, which is the underworld, which is hell, God is there. You go as far east as you want to go, God's there. You go as far as west as you want to go, God is there. Adam and Eve tried to hide from God. God's like, really? A tree? I made that. I don't know what has caused you to run away in fear and failure, but one thing I can promise you is God is not going to answer it in anger. God is not coming after you with an earthquake or a wind or a fire, all the things you're expecting, all the things you think you deserve. If this passage shows us anything, he is coming after you with a gentle whisper in love and thankfulness. And some of you are saying, but Andrew, it's Elijah. You know what James tells us about Elijah? Elijah was a man just like us. There was nothing special or inherent about him. He's not, God's not going to show him grace just because he's Elijah. God is a God of grace and mercy and love. But he's not willing to leave Elijah where he was in his sin. He wasn't as like, I just love you. Whatever you do is good. He was like, now, I love you. You know I love you. I've come after you in grace and mercy. Now turn. Now come back. Now go where you should go. Follow me. God was going to go ahead of him to make all this happen. So I don't know what you're doing here. But I know that God, every step of your journey, is following you to wrap his arms around you, to love you, to use that still, small whisper of a voice to remind you of his love, to remind you of his grace, to remind you of his mercy. How will you respond to a God that loves you that much? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I do thank you that it is not about us, but it's about you. It's not about our faithfulness, but about your faithfulness. Because you are faithful even when we are faithless. Thank you that you continue to pour out your grace and mercy. Thank you that culminated in the death of your son. That even when we look through the Old Testament passages, we see your grace abound more and more to people who were unworthy. Thank you that we are unworthy people. Father, forgive us for the places where we have run far from you, the places we have gone in the opposite direction, the places where we are hiding even now. But thank you that you are a God who comes after us. Not for our sake, but for your sake. Not for our glory, but for your glory. 
and that even now you are pursuing us with love and tenderness, that you may use the fire and the tempest and the earthquake to get our attention, but you will speak to us out of the gentle whisper of your heart. Lord, we praise you and we thank you that you're that kind of God and that we can come and be reminded of that at the table this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.